You're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Governor Josh Green asked lawmakers to work with him to address the housing crisis and the high cost of living in uh, Green's State of the State speech. Today, HBR reporter Sabrina Bowden joins us live with more on reaction to Green's priority list. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So, as you said, Governor Josh Green gave his inaugural State of the State yesterday, and it was kind of him talking about his different proposals. There's proposals to reform tax credits and tax breaks, establishing a climate impact fee for visitors, and he also proposed $1 billion for local housing this fiscal year. And in the middle of his speech, uh, Green signed a emergency proclamation on homelessness. And what that focuses on is construction of 12 Kahale communities uh, for the homeless. And what it does is it suspends several laws related to construction and renovation of housing. So housing chair representative Troy Hashimoto of Maui, uh, he seems optimistic that this emergency proclamation will speed up construction. What this proclamation essentially helps us to do is focus in on that lower end housing that is sometimes what really it's just the fundamental of what people need right it's, it's either have this temporary housing or have nothing at all and so i think making sure that we can cut through a lot of the red tape when we have these smaller end projects it, it still takes a tremendous time to get permitting um, to make sure that all of the counties are satisfied with infrastructure and so hopefully this will allow us to you know, run various approvals concurrently to cut time off and to entice uh, individuals and developers to want to invest in this space. I think when, when you know, when you don't really push developers to, to look at this space, they would rather do something else. And so I think we want to see if we can continue partnerships that were formed previous in the last, uh, before the pandemic and also during the last emergency proclamation to see what more can be done. I think, as I said, without the proclamation, things um, have slowed substantially. So I, we, we know that it, there, it, it works to get things moving. And Senate President Ron Kochi expressed his commitment to work with Green. He even wore a green tie yesterday to kind of signal that, you know, he supports the governor and everything that he's working on. And Kochi, shared, Kochi also shared some hesitation about the emergency proclamation and raised some concerns about the environmental laws that would be suspended to speed up constructions and permitting. He said investment will be top of mind to try to get this going. Uh, the state ledge has already put $15 million into housing uh, last year, and Green has proposed an additional $15 million next fiscal year. Well, we all want the affordable housing faster. Uh, those in the environmental community want to be sure you don't go so fast that you bypass certain environmental requirements that would ensure that what you're doing doesn't bring environmental harm uh, to the area that you're building in. Uh, but we've put in the money from the last session and to do the planning in some cases land acquisition permitting takes time and so the commitment for more dollars uh, going into the affordable housing program just ensures once we start building that there would be a continuous build going on. In the past we've had some good years where we've invested then we've faced some downturns in the economy we couldn't commit as much money so you don't have a pipeline and we're trying to create the pipeline right now. 
And what Senator Kochi is talking about with this pipeline, a lot of the budget and priorities really rely on the March report from the Council of Revenues to really figure out what money is coming into the state and what money can sort of go out and what boxes it can go into. And while lawmakers and legislators were mostly supportive of green speech and proposals, they still disagree on some issues. So several lawmakers, Kochi included, have signaled that some cabinet appointees will have a difficult time getting confirmed. There's already been some controversy and discussion on Department of Hawaiian Homelands appointee Akaiko Anderson and Department of Land and Natural Resources Don Cheng. I, I think the uh, jury is still out, though, in how uh, you know all of the cabinet members have been currently performing when they've appeared in front of the committees. It seems uh, that you know some of the cabinet members have not been able to uh, clearly articulate a vision and a plan, and uh, they've had. Uh, there's been some trouble in answering a few questions from the Senate. Uh, the Senate continues to say, we'd like you to go back, work on it, and come back. So we continue to have an open mind. But at the end of the day, we have a responsibility under the Constitution to thoroughly vet to uh, our satisfaction these nominees on the advice and consent process. And as you can see from the hearings that have gone on and, uh, you know, the vice president and majority leader are on the Ways and Means Committee. They've been taking their role seriously. And so far, we haven't seen those uh, confirmation hearings set yet. No, the governor's messages have not come down on the appointees yet. Uh, but on the House leadership side, Scott Psyche kind of echoed the same sentiments that uh, Senate President Kochi had had, where very supportive of the main priorities that Governor Josh Green mentioned during the speech. But it's kind of just uh, how we get there and how we can make the processes work. Yeah, and I understand that some folks were concerned that he didn't have a lot of detail with some of his uh, ideas that he underscored. You know, he reassured mm -hmm. that he still wants to do the stadium uh, idea and then also the, um, the prison. The new prison? Yeah. Um, a lot of the conversation yesterday surrounding those two projects was that we want to get going, we want to invest, but we need to figure out how we're going to do that so that we get the most bang for our buck. Yeah, so we'll see then uh, what kind of uh, pushback uh, he <laughs> encounters as those proposals make their way through the session. But thank you so much, Sabrina. Of course. We have been uh, chatting with HPR Sabrina Bowden. Uh, she's had more reaction to Governor Josh Green's first State of the State address. You can find her coverage online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Ellen Meredith, author of Your Body Will Show You the Way. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about energy medicine for personal and global change. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a Master of Science program in travel industry management. More information online at scheidler.hawaii.edu.
reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat continues our look at what else is on tap this legislative session. Reporter Blaze Lovell joins us. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Catherine. Boy, it's a full day yesterday. It was definitely a full day. You know, as Governor Josh Green, he sort of unveiled his big package for legislators. And really, work has already gotten underway in the building. One of the major things that might be developing is uh, lawmakers are going to try to seek some shields against Supreme Court rulings from last year, specifically the ones that overturned a woman's constitutional right to have an abortion on the federal level and also another that limited states' abilities to restrict firearms when carried outside the home. Right. And on that firearms issue, we know that the counties are looking at it, you know, and there are different stages with the with the permit process, but it would be easier if there was just a statewide law. Right. The Big Island Council passed theirs a few months ago. I think a bill is moving through the Honolulu City Council. And what the councils are looking at is they call them sensitive places and places where you aren't allowed to bring your concealed firearm. They're considering things like grocery stores, churches, government buildings and things like that. But Mayor Mitch Roth, he was actually down at the legislature yesterday for a hearing. He said that it would be a lot easier if the counties all had one statewide regulation that they could follow and add on to if they need to in their own individual circumstances. And a lot of people do feel that way that, you know, this should really be a statewide rule. And what about uh, any pushback that we might get from groups who just don't want, you know, to be prevented from carrying their guns in places like that? Yeah, I spoke to Todd Yukutaki. He's the director of the Hawaii Firearms Coalition. He actually agrees with a lot of the restrictions that will be in place. You know, the coalition agrees that you shouldn't be able to bring, he said, you know, common sense places, places like schools, school buildings, government buildings, a courthouse, anywhere you wouldn't already be allowed to carry a firearm. Where they take issue with it, though, is they don't want it to be too broad or too expansive. So right now, some of the counties and this one bill that's been introduced in the Senate, it proposes to ban it in places like child care facilities, churches, uh, public parks. And there's a catch-all that says, you know, any gathering of individuals to express their rights to protest or assembly. And so that could essentially mean anywhere. And the gun rights groups, that's sort of what they're you know, worried about is that it could be too expansive. I think we just got a query from a mainland group concerned about the legislation that's being proposed. And, you know, they're talking about threatened legal action. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that's also a concern here, too. A couple of other uh, gun rights folks I talked to said that, you know, if the laws were to go through as they are now, they could expect some court challenges. In fact, uh, there's a case out of New York where uh, a gun rights group is actually challenging their so-called sensitive places legislation. And there was an injunction issued in November to put a halt to enforcing their laws. Okay, so we're going to see a lot of uh, push and pull on the gun issue. Uh, what about the abortion rights issue? Because, you know, some of that is already protected in our Constitution, right? Right. On abortion rights, much of it is protected in our Constitution. And the Supreme Court's 
um, opinion in the Dobbs case, you know, it doesn't end states' rights. It says that it leaves it up to the states. So if you're in a state that already protects abortion, you're fine. But if you're not, you, you, you know, then you might be in trouble. Our state does, but lawmakers want to expand those protections. They want to make sure that, you know, people who cross state lines to come here to get an abortion are protected from criminal or civil liabilities, as well as they want to protect the Hoya doctors who have been performing abortions on people from out of state. And what's your sense? you think that the lawmakers are going to tackle this sooner than later? Do you think there's more broad consensus on these uh, two issues? You know, it does seem that way. The pro-women's rights groups, they, they held a big rally at the Capitol on Friday that was attended by representatives from Green's administration. Uh, there was a broad base of lawmakers there. So definitely will get some attention. The bill I was just mentioning, that's going to be introduced by the Senate Health Chairwoman, Senator Joyce San Buenaventura. And it actually matches an order that was in place under Governor David Ige. This would just be putting those protections into law. And you know that order is something Governor Green is also abiding under. Okay. All right. Two things to watch. But thank you so much, Blaze. Thanks, Catherine. All right. We have been talking to Civil Beat's Blaze Level. You can check out his legislative coverage at civilbeat.org. Support sustainability reporting on HPR. Adela's country eatery in Kaneohe has been innovating ways to become more sustainable. I like ulu. Ulu is a lot of fiber, and I like moringa. Then the mix is kalo and Okinawa sweet potato and avocado. Donna Shapiro, general manager of the Hawaii Ulu Cooperative, says she's excited about the recent rollout of recipe-ready packs of Hawaii-grown staples. In addition to ulu, we have kalo, uala, and palaai, or pumpkin. We're really trying to make these products accessible for families in Hawaii, for everyday consumers. Hawaii imports over 99% of its staple foods, primarily rice, wheat, and potatoes. So by transitioning to eat more locally grown staples, you are making a huge difference to the food security of our islands, the economic resilience, the viability of farming. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. This past week, state health officials announced they found trace amounts of what's called these toxic PFAS, uh, often referred to as forever chemicals, in a Cuneo water drinking well that used to be owned by Del Monte Plantation. There's said to be some 600 Oahu residents on that water system. This morning, we talked to Dr. Diana Felton, our state toxicologist, about the testing of those chemicals. When I first started at the Department of Health in 2018, it was sort of one of the first things we took on because we saw it being coming such a big problem in other states across the country. And so we started projects to investigate where our sources might be here in Hawaii. And so this detection uh, that was found over in the Cuneo Wells, I mean, that's an old plantation. There's so many of these areas across the state. What should the public know? The first thing to know is that these chemicals are really ubiquitous. They're in so many materials and places. And we're fortunate in Hawaii we don't have PFAS manufacturing plants. That has been really the source of a lot of problems in 
other parts of the country. But here in Hawaii, our sources really are a little more limited, but they're still everywhere, these chemicals. So they're in firefighting foam is, is a big source. And so anywhere near airports or firefighting training or places where there's been a big fire or military installations are going to have PFAS in the environment. But these chemicals are also in food containers, fast food wrappings, they're in nonstick and non-stain resistant household products and, you know, couches and carpets. And they're really very, very prevalent throughout our environment. They're in a lot of makeups and personal care products, pesticides. So there's lots of places that they can come from. So on a daily basis, we're probably exposed to some of this stuff, but at very low levels. Almost certainly. And so when it turns up in our drinking water, I guess, what should we know? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's still a lot of big question marks about exactly how much of a risk is it when it's in the drinking water. Of course, with drinking water, that's something, you know, a person would ingest every day, you know, multiple times a day. And over a long period of time, even low levels are likely to cause some health impacts. And does it dissipate, let's say, if you use water that uh, has trace elements of it? Could you cook it off? Could you boil it off? Oh, that's a great question. No. People often refer to these chemicals as forever chemicals because they don't really break down in the environment at all. And that includes in your water. So boiling water or, you know, letting it evaporate is not going to destroy or remove these chemicals. Okay. So let's say for those families on the Cunea Wells, oh, you know, what should they do? Should they filter their water? There are some options for home filtering that are likely to reduce the PFAS that they are exposed to. And so that's an option for people. You know, we are always concerned because that requires people to be able to afford the filtration systems, et cetera, and they have to be maintained carefully. But, you know, there's not a lot of other options at this point. One of the other things is people could think about where they might be exposed to these chemicals in other parts of their lives and try to minimize that as well. You know, and you've said that it's found in fabrics. Is this fabrics that we wear? I mean, you mentioned fabrics like upholstery, you know, that we sit on. Yeah, sofas. anything waterproof is going to most likely have it. So any kind of waterproof rain jacket will have these chemicals, um, any sort of waterproof shoes. So yes, definitely in clothes that we wear. You aren't likely to get exposed to a lot of it when it's in the clothes you wear, except for what we call unintentional ingestion, meaning you, you know, you touch the jacket, maybe some of it's deteriorating a little bit and the chemicals get on your hands and then if you eat. But just it touching your skin is not is not a concern, but it's sort of having it in your environment and the risk of it then getting, you know, into your mouth somehow. Okay. And of course we worry about that more with children who put a lot of things in their mouths. And then you know you did mention you know the filtering, but of course if you have a system for filtering, you've got to make sure that you change the filter. So you just don't have a filter in there that uh, hasn't been changed for years. Exactly, and that's really important. So there's a number of different types of filters that will remove PFAS. None of them are perfect and will remove every last molecule, but some will certainly reduce the total amount of PFAS people are exposed to. But it's really important that they're maintained according to the manufacturer's instructions, because exactly as you say, if you don't change the filters or maintain them, then they they don't do their job and lead you to a false sense of security. And you know, you mentioned the military because there are 
lots of different activities that, you know, require some of the hazardous material to be used. You know, I'm just thinking, let's say in some of the land that they have turned back to the state, they may have drinking water systems, I don't know, that may not be up, up to par with code. Uh, I don't know, any concerns there? Certainly. And that's always a concern. So anywhere where they do a lot of firefighting training, where there's airports, those are places where these chemicals have been used for a very long time. These chemicals go back to the 40s and 50s. Any kind of firefighting, if there's been fires or firefighting training, these chemicals have been sprayed into the environment in those areas going back decades. And certainly airport military bases are places where there's a lot of firefighting, firefighting training going on. So those are definitely areas of concern. And in Hawaii, those are certainly our most concerning sources, potential sources. And what about our landfills across the state? You know, I mean, I know that over at the uh, Waimanalo uh, Gulch landfill over in uh, the Waianae side on the west side, you know, there are liners, I think, for like the H-Power ash, but, you know, just the general trash, I'm sure there's lots of PFAS there. Definitely. And, you know, landfill leachate, sort of the water that leaches out from a landfill is definitely an, an area of concern and study. Actually, the Department of Health, we're doing a study currently looking at landfill leachate as, you know, how much PFAS may be there. And then, but a lot of it depends on what happens to the leachate. So a lot of the leachate, at, once it's collected at a landfill, then goes to a wastewater treatment plant. So it there's much more research that needs to be done about how those chemicals may be moving both through the landfill and then once they're in the leachate, then where might they go from there? Is there any sense of them being changed or destroyed from after that? Or are they getting into a situation where they might be contaminating, say, the near shore environment or some other part of the environment? You know, I mean, that is a good point, right? Our wastewater is, you know, supposedly treated uh, before it is discharged in, into the ocean. So, yeah, what, what exactly is left? Yeah, so in general, these PFAS chemicals do not get removed with wastewater treatment. And that's a, an area of a lot of concern, both here in Hawaii and across the country, that these chemicals are likely to move through the wastewater treatment system and go out with the effluent, with the discharge out into the ocean. And that's actually part of the same project we're working on with the landfill leachate is looking at the wastewater, you know, the concentrations of these chemicals in wastewater, both coming into the wastewater treatment plants and going out to further understand how they might be getting out into the environment and particularly the ocean. How far along are we on those studies? We're about halfway through, actually. Uh, we've collected samples and have some information from neighbor island counties from Big Island, Maui, and Kauai, and we're waiting to collect samples from facilities here in Honolulu County, and then we've also collected, but don't have results back yet, from the Army and Navy facilities here on Oahu. Can you say anything about the federal regulation for testing on um, these forever chemicals? Yeah, it's changing rapidly is the number one thing. The EPA has put together what they call their PFAS roadmap, which is really trying to catch 
up to a lot of what a lot of states are doing. You know, that's been part of the problem with these chemicals. They're so complicated. There's so many of them. And each individual state has been doing a, their own work on them. But we really needed a comprehensive regulatory approach. And so EPA is really working hard. Some of the things they are proposing is um, designating two of these chemicals as um, hazardous substances. And also soon to be announced, we hear, is a drinking water regulatory level called the maximum contaminant level, um, which would be regulatory law type enforceable. Um, once that comes out, there's about a year period of public comment and peer review and until it goes into law, but that will certainly help in some ways. The problem is, while I really applaud a lot of the EPA efforts, there's a lot of focus on two to four, uh, maybe a few more of these compounds, but there's hundreds of them. And we still really don't have a great sense of the different individual chemicals and also the exposures to people and the environment when there's mixtures of them. So it's a very complicated research question and also it's just very difficult to understand whether you're reading about them or trying to understand how they may be impacting you because we do know a fair bit about a couple of them, but there's so many and many of them haven't been researched. So it's, it's quite difficult. So a lot of unknowns still. Yes. One important point though, do we have the capability to test for this stuff here in our local labs? We do not. In fact, there's only a few labs across the U.S. and really the world that can test for these reliably. The testing is expensive. It's quite difficult. It's come a long way in the last few years, and I expect the technology will improve. But so far, it's really limited, particularly those with EPA certification to test these and those that can do it in a reliable fashion where you can trust the results. That was State Health Department's, uh, State Health Department's toxicologist, Dr. Diana Felton, talking to us about the threat of PFAS, or what's referred to as forever chemicals. They are found in everything from fabric to firefighting foam to food packaging. Look for links on what you should know about these chemicals on the conversation page of our website later today. Today on The Daily, for the fifth time, classified documents belonging to President Biden have been found outside of a secure government location, this time by FBI agents searching his home. We look at how Biden chose to handle those discoveries since they began and why for so long he left the public in the dark. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Kahilu Theater on Hawaii Island, presenting jazz dance group Giordano Dance Chicago, performing 7 p.m. this Saturday. Tickets at kahilutheater.org.
For the past six decades, Pacific Business News has had its hand on the pulse of Hawaii's economy. This week, it marks its 60th anniversary. We talked to Cam Napier, PBN's editor-in-chief, about the company's early beginnings and how it's looking ahead. George Mason founded Pacific Business News in 1963. Our first issue came out in March of 1963. Um, We've been weekly ever since then. Uh, George Mason, uh, in addition to being an entrepreneur, he had been the head of the Office of Economic Development in the territorial era and then early statehood era. And so he knew how much data and information government gathers that would be of interest to business owners and business leaders. But of course, that information was kind of hard to come by, especially back then, if you didn't trouble yourself to go to an office somewhere and rummage through the files, it would be hard to find this. So his thought for a product would be, well, what if we publish some of this information that's of interest to business leaders and did some business journalism and made a publication out of it, yeah, so I mean, some advertising. And that was that was the idea. And so we launched in 1963. Uh, Mason later sold Pacific Business News to American City Business Journal. So we're part of that company. Uh, to this day, he stayed on well into the 90s as as publisher. You know, I just remember seeing uh, the reporters for Pacific Business News down there at the courts, you know, because they were just gathering all the information right, from right. the lawsuits. And, right. Oh, my gosh. Right. And, you know, to this day, the leads section, as we call it, is still one of the most popular features in every weekly edition. And then it goes online and subscribers can uh, can search it for things. And, you know, we, we typically include things like major building permits, uh, major lawsuits that involve businesses, uh, mechanics, liens, things like that. Uh, But in particular, new business filings. So if someone's registered a business in Hawaii, we'll share the name of that business and the owner and some contact information. And, you know, I was at a trade show once when I first joined PBN, oh, way back in 2014, and was chatting with one of the vendors there who does tinting, window tinting. He was very excited. He said, oh, leads. I look at the leads section immediately every week because every new business has windows and I tint Ah. windows. So for him, it was a really important resource for business development to find, well, leads, as we call it. You know, and as a journalist, I used to scour your paper for story ideas. And uh, I love the book of lists. I mean, I'm, I'm a nerd when it comes to lists, but I just thought this was a wonderful wide-angle view of yeah. your community. Yeah. Thank you. The The lists are a tremendous amount of work, and I have to give a shout-out here to Lucy Tui-Tupo. She's our researcher. It's a full-time job just gathering the data for these lists. So what Book of Lists is a compilation of all the lists that we've published through the, the previous year. But, of course, the oldest ones would be... 12 months old by then. So Lucy updates all the lists as we're putting the publication together. So it's a tremendous amount of work. Let's see, how many pages is this year's? 208 pages. And for folks who've never seen this book, I mean, you you tell us who the boss is. You tell us right. how many employees, right. you know, they're standing, right. you know, in the Revenues, in the number of employees, all of that. The names of owners and business leaders. Yeah, it's a really great resource. And that's another thing, too, that is subscribers to our site can kind of slice and dice that data from lists and do searches. And, you know, one of the interesting evolutions of our business and our company is the expansion of that 
that data aspect over time. So, for example, there's a, a business within the business called Biz Equity that nationwide can help people set a value on their business, which is a, a, a value, business valuation is, is a critical thing. You need it to convince investors of your prospects so you can get more investment. You need to be able to share that if you're going for financing. Maybe it's a little bit arcane, so expert help is always welcome. And so that's the sort of thing the company has expanded into over the years. And then you offer like I think mentorship programs too. Right, right. In fact, Mentoring Monday is coming up in February, uh, and that's where we gather. It's it's primarily meant for women in business. And so the mentors are all women who have been CEOs, presidents, business owners. The attendees are mainly women, but you know, not exclusively. We would not refuse a ticket to a guy if he showed up and said, I would like to meet some of these mentors. That is a, that is a very fun event because it's sort of like speed dating. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone, Everyone's seated at this long line of tables, uh, all the CEOs, and you have seven minutes to talk to somebody. And then uh, my function at the event is I ring a bell to let everyone know it's time to get up and move to a different mentor. I think we do seven or eight rounds uh, of that at seven minutes. And so people get a chance to talk to a number of folks and pick their brains about how they built their career, how they built their business. Yeah. So you make business fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've got an event coming up to, to mark this anniversary um, this week. Uh, talk right. about that. Right. The Book of Lists slash Power Leaders 60th anniversary event is Thursday, Thursday evening at the Alohulani Resort. I think we still have some tickets for sale. Last I heard, we were up to 200 attendees. So this is an annual event that we're, well, we're certainly happy to be back to events after uh, a little hiatus there for a couple of years. But, you know, last year we were bringing things back and one of our annual events was always the Book of Lists launch party. This year we thought we'd uh, just make it a little extra special our 60th anniversary. Of course, we're very excited about it, but we also would rather look forward rather than back. And so we named about 14 or 15 people as power leaders who we profiled in Book of Lists. Uh, these are people that we think will be contributing to the business climate and Hawaii's future overall in the years to come. And it includes people like Alicia Flores with L&L, Peggy Farias with WH Shipman on Hawaii Island, and Tiranishi with American Savings Bank, you know, folks like that. The issue of the paper that's coming out this week, and we'll have copies at the event, we interviewed all of our power leaders to ask them about, you know, who inspires you? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? And also, what do you think are Hawaii's competitive advantages and disadvantages? So it's, it's really interesting to see their answers as they've come in. So is this kind of like the 40 under 40? Kind of like, only yeah. with no particular age limit. Mm -hmm. um, just folks that we thought would be contributing to Hawaii greatly over the years to come. People to watch. Yeah, people to watch kind of thing. Right. Who's going to lead us into the next yeah. 60 years? Exactly. <laughs> PBN is all about data. And I remember, you know, one aspect uh, of the newspaper was tracking new companies and foreign companies. Yeah. That yeah. to me was fascinating. Yeah, that's in Leeds as well, foreign mm -hmm. companies. And then from the journalism side, you know, well, we could probably be covering some of them a little bit more but we we you know we tend to talk to business owners and business leaders around the state what they're doing 
what their new products are, what their new expansions are, or uh, as sometimes happen, you know, if they have to close things down, we'll talk about that as well. And, and you also kind of go on the road. I mean, you did something with the West Side here on a walk, right. Kabbalah, and, right. and how that right. second city kind of is shaping up. Yeah, uh, you know, we do a, a lot of events, and some of them are very much discussion oriented, and so we'll do regional panel conversations where we go out on the road and uh, we'll go to Hawaii Island, we we'll go to Maui. Uh, we've been to Kauai. We do West Oahu. In the past, we've done Windward Oahu as well. I think we'll be bringing that one back. And we'll just get four or five leaders from the area and see what's on their minds about how things are going in that region. So what's on tap for 2023? Oh my goodness. We have so many things going on. There's all the usual stuff. Uh, we just, you know, there's also roundtables in addition to panels and we hold a roundtable uh, at least once a month. Uh, usually they're led by the, our reporters and they focus on a beat that we cover. So commercial real estate or residential real estate, technology, retail, restaurants, just all the all the different categories that we pay special attention to. So those are not public, but they are recorded and we write up the highlights and share those with readers. And so those happen all year round. There's the, the regional panel discussions. Then there's other recognition type of programs like Women Who Mean Business is coming up. We're still taking nominations for things like Pineapple Awards, which is for the visitor industry. Inno on Fire. Inno is a kind of a catch-all name that we use for our coverage of startups and innovation. We wanted to mention 40 Under 40, fastest growing companies. Uh, we're looking for nominations for those as well. So yeah, on Inno, that, that's been an exciting evolution is, is to to just kind of brand and pay attention to innovation in Hawaii right, in a particular trends. way, right? Mm -hmm. The trends and, and the leaders. It's, it's nationwide throughout American City Business Journals, this rollout of Inno. But each of the markets had latitude to figure out, well, what does Inno mean for your city? The tech startup scene of people doing apps and software in Hawaii is very, very energetic, but fairly small compared to other cities like Silicon Valley, for example. So. We thought uh, it made sense for for Inno for innovation coverage to include energy and agriculture, because when Hawaii talks about what do we need, what do we need to improve on, what do we need to do better, we need to diversify. Uh, right, we need to diversify, and the state has major energy goals, but also has major agricultural goals. And so, yeah, for us, Inno embraces the traditional tech startups, but also energy and agriculture. And then, just given the state of the state, lots of talk about hydrogen power yeah. and uh, you know the potential there. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess you'll 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 be tracking it all. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yes, our reporters all have their specialties, and if I can mention who they are, Stephanie Salmons covers commercial and residential real estate. Sophia Compton covers tourism, energy, and money, which for us embraces everything from banking to venture capital and insurance and whatnot. And Katie Helland, uh, who just joined the PBN team, we're excited to have her. She's covering restaurants, retail, and agriculture. Okay. All important and yeah. uh, all in Pacific Business News. Right. But thank you much and happy thank 60th. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> That was Pacific Business News Editor Cam Napier talking with us about the 60th anniversary of the Weekly Business Journal serving Hawaii's business community. He contributes the weekly uh, Pacific Business News reports that you hear on Hawaii Public Radio.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queen's Health System, committed to caring for the community at its hospitals and clinics. Learn more at queens.org. A cigarette butt is tiny, but in Spain, it is a huge problem. Hundreds of tons of butts are collected from streets, plazas, and especially those white sandy beaches. Spanish lawmakers want tobacco companies and smokers to pay for the cleanup. There are plans to tax each cigarette, and there are hopes for a recycling program. Spain's problem with cigarette butts, it's next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra's Hapa Symphony Series, presenting an evening of melee with traditional Hawaiian music band Keaho, performing February 4th at Hawaii Theater. Tickets at myhso.org. January, many of us make New Year's resolutions to get healthier or lose weight. For many Native Hawaiians, that can be an uphill battle. The National Center for Health Statistics says diabetes and death due to heart disease occurs at higher rates in Hawaiians and among Caucasians. Kipuka O Keola Native Hawaiian Rural Health Clinic is hoping to change that with its Ululau Kahi program. It's a free year-long health program for Native Hawaiians. The conversations Russell Subiono sat down with clinical psychologist Dr. Claren Kealoha Bode, who heads the clinic, to talk about the program. So when you look at holistically, take a look at Native Hawaiian health, you cannot really separate apart the various kind of propensities toward diabetes, prediabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, that kind of goes in hand in hand with your mental health, anxiety, and depression. And so a lot of the kind of the, the way that we think about health when it comes to Native Hawaiians is to think about those behaviors that are associated with both our mental health as well as our physical health. So the behaviors for the most part, when you dismantle the behaviors around health and health care, you're going to dismantle the ideas of pretty much the social determinants of health, right? All of those kind of disruptions that occurred after colonization. So when I say disruptions, I'm talking about kind of a culture and a way of life that was intact, that was primarily centered around a worldview of collectivism where the ahupua'a was sharing of resources. And so the health of your community was probably more important than the health of the individual person. And so after colonization occurred, now we're looking at more of a kind of a capitalistic worldview, one that is taking into consideration the power of the people being in in the way that commerce works and consumerism works. And so this idea was foreign to Kanaka and it impacted our socioeconomic status, our ideas about land and land ownership, our ability to take care of ourselves, 
what is health, what is healthcare, and also education. And so with, with the demise of, of all of those kind of structures came also, you know, those chronic diseases that are associated with Indigenous people in general. So also our Native Americans and Native Alaskan brothers and sisters as well, which is diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, depression, and anxiety. It seems like a lot of efforts to get Hawaiians healthy has to do with overcoming a lot of the ways we've been raised, you know, and our parents have been raised and, and overcoming, you know, those those habits and those, that kind of lifestyle. And so how does Ululaukahi, how does that give Native Hawaiians tools to be able to live a healthier life? So Kipuko Kiola, we also refer to ourselves as Koko. Mm -hmm. We received a ANA grant, an ANA grant in, let's see, in 2020. And so we launched the Ululokahi program. And primarily what we've done is we've gone through our patient base and identified Native Hawaiians as well as their families and identified those people that fit into a category of chronic disease. The chronic diseases are the ones we've already talked about, right? And then we developed kind of a more of a comprehensive or collectivistic approach to finding solutions or programming for our participants that really fosters behavior change. So we're very interested in how behavior, our everyday behaviors, the way we buy food, the way we move our bodies, the way we think about economy, the way we think about the safety of our environment. And then we structured the program based on those things and our spiritual health as well, right? So the program primarily is the components of the program are you get a health coach and the health coach is kind of your person that is monitoring kind of your kuleana to the program, right? And again, this is trying to anchor into that collectivistic worldview again, right? Where collectivistic people feel more of a connection to the kuleana of, of their kuleana to someone else than they do to themselves, right? And so there's a collective responsibility that if I join this program, I am now a participant with about a hundred other people and we're all collectively moving toward health goals that have been determined by our primary care providers. And so you get a health coach, you also get a gym membership. You can choose yoga, CrossFit, weightlifting, Pilates, whatever it is that each individual chooses. In addition to that, every month we do healthy recipes. And we also give food bags. And the idea of the food bags is to introduce ingredients that people wouldn't normally go to the grocery store and buy. So we ran the program last year and we introduced amino acids as a substitute for shoyu. And it was so interesting how people were, um, you know, initially kind of, no way, don't touch my shoyu, please. Touch anything, but not my shoyu, right? <laughs> And what we found is that after we purchased shoyu and helped people understand how to use it and give recipes and ingredients and replacement foods, like instead of hamburger, we'll use ground turkey. And people's palates 
started to change over time. And alternative options became interesting and curious. And what we knew or had planned and had hoped for was that the different eating habits would kind of permeate or infiltrate to the family system into the ohana. And that's what happened. So we, as a result of working with one person that had chronic disease, we were able to influence those behavior changes amongst their entire ohana, yeah. Earlier, you also talked about the mental component of the program. And I, I know that the mental part of changing bad habits and, and behaviors is just as important as the physical. How does Ululaukahi address the mental part of it? And, and also, I feel like for a lot of points, a lot of Polynesians in general, I think, being big, they feel as part of their cultural identity. And mm-hmm. so there's that component to also overcome. How does Ululaukahi address the, the mental and, and the identity component of a health and wellness journey? Yeah, I feel like our goal around the cultural identity piece is about more of the collaborative effort where, you know, I'm not walking this journey alone. I'm walking it with members of my community and my ohana. And so the identity piece is we're going to anchor it in education about what it means to know your numbers. What does it mean to understand what your A1C is? And then we're going to explain what an A1C means and, and the propensity for cardiovascular disease and diabetes. So we, we anchor it in the education so that there is understanding that your kuleana to your family is about you being, being here in this earthly realm. And for us to understand that by taking care of yourself, by knowing your numbers, by getting your cardiovascular disease under control, by understanding how to manage diabetes, by knowing that diabetes and depression go hand in hand, right? So it's very hard to separate or tease apart diabetes and depression. They normally always tend to go hand in hand. And so to create the basis of that educational platform and then create the the, the pilina the kind of like that joining of, of a shared goal of Kuliana of health in general, right? And that part of our cultural identity is also anchored in Aina. And as a people, obesity started with colonization and the introduction of saturated fats. It's not who we were prior to colonization. And so that is growth, that is awareness, that is having the vision to create a vibrant lahui, which then creates vibrant keiki and generational change. What kind of result did you see in your first year? What was the outcome? What, what kind of changes were you able to bring to the community? So we took 119 community members, all Native Hawaiian, and the program lasted for about nine months. And our goal was to be able to drop two out of the five indicators, one degree of significance, right? So we're going to get into the weeds if I start telling you what the what the drop was, but we had 87 people meet their goals, clinically significant goal out of the 121 participants. We had people that were diabetic, dependent on insulin, that are no longer dependent on insulin. People that had various injuries. So we had participants that 
wanted to have hip surgery or knee surgery, but couldn't because they needed to lose weight before they could get the surgeries performed. Now they've actually got their surgeries performed. The stories go on and on. And so we're looking to anchor exactly what we hope the program is about, which is education, community, support, and kind of a spiritual collectivistic understanding of who we are as a people. Thank you so much, Dr. Claren, for talking story with me. And thank you for all the work that you're doing for Kanako Evie. Mahalo. I appreciate the conversation. That was Dr. Claren Kealoha Boday, head of the Kipuka Keola Clinic on Hawaii Island, talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. We'll have links to the clinic's Ulu Laukahi program on the conversation page of our website later today. Well, that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow on The Long View, we get the skinny on AI, artificial intelligence, lots of potential, lots of hand-wringing as well. What do you think about artificial intelligence? What are your fears and hopes? Share your comments or questions about what you've heard on our air calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. 